In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The work of Sunday is to work with what is worked out in the text. Not to work to get away from the text, but to work to encounter the text and what it has to say. Every three years, this text rolls around, and it's not an easy text. I may have dodged the bullet before, but this year I must take it on. And it's not just a text, it's a parable. And it's not just any parable, but the parable of the shrewd steward, if you'll permit the translation. And that is one of the most elusive parables we have. In it, a steward is accused of being untrustworthy of squandering the substance of the one who he has sworn to serve and protect. And in a blatant act of self-preservation, he seems to justify that accusation. And there it sits. He willfully writes off the sums that are owed his former patron so that he, the steward, can continue to enjoy the patronage of those who were in his debt. Like I say, there it sits. And it doesn't always sit well. Yes, this plays very well on Wall Street, this scenario, unless you get caught, even if you do get caught. And yet Jesus himself seems to stand by and applaud this audacity. The master commended the unjust manager for his worldly wisdom. For the sons of this world are more wise in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unjustified wealth. Very provocative to take this out of the scripture. In one sense, you just don't want to lift this out and run with it too far or you'll get tripped up somehow. So, I've always read the story as if the rich man was in the oil business and in the grain business. These are commodities which are still traded fairly regularly and with some interest on our exchanges. And he was owed money from the purchasers of goods that he had sold, money or oil. Whether he was the producer or just a middleman didn't really matter. He'd sold something, he was owed the matter. It was simply a matter of justice. You get what's yours, what is owed to you, fair and square. In this, then, it's the master who has been wronged, doubly wronged, by his steward, his manager. And it leaves us with a rather bad taste the way it's resolved. Now N.T. Wright proposes a fascinating solution, a way of reading this text which resolves some of these complexities. In Wright's scenario, the rich man is not a producer, and the text is open on this, selling goods to the consumer and sitting on the debt. He is a lender, loaning at high rates of interest and awaiting repayment of it all. So it's not about selling at an inflated price and cutting a deal to those who owe the seller for your own sake. It's about lending for exorbitant rates of interest and then letting the lenders off without paying the interest. It's a very interesting way of looking at it. Now the Bible, the Old Testament at least, as far as we get at the end of the Torah, forbids the children of Israel to buy and sell money, that is to lend money for interest to one another. You could borrow money and you were free to lend it as long as it was for free. You just couldn't charge interest. 
The texts that are important to us are two, and they're short. I'll read them, therefore. Exodus 22:25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Then Leviticus 25, 35 to 37. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. Notice it's implicit. You support strangers and sojourners in your midst, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him food for profit. Now, the word interest is always the same, neshek, or some variation of that, and it's hammered over and over and over again. The texts are absolutely clear on this. The only variation they seem to make in this idea that you should never lend with interest is the idea that perhaps the poor should receive the benefit of your generosity first and foremost. The poor who needed help should receive that help in the form of a loan, just as we would often do for one another. We would expect to have it paid back. Foreigners, by implication, uh, should pay interest, if you wished, at whatever the going rate. That's another story. Now, it seems there was never much interest in doing business in that way in Israel. So enterprising Israelites traded with one another in goods rather than cash. And of course, if you were in need and poor and your back was against the wall, you could find the interest rates sky high. If you needed oil, you were given oil and you'd have to give oil back but at 50% more than you received. If you needed grain to survive, you were given grain, but you expected to give back a mere 20% over and above as you repaid your debt. Those rates amounted to extortion. And when the steward knocks down the bill, what he is saying to these debtors then is, just pay back the principal, forget the interest. And in doing this, what he is doing is righting a wrong, according to the text, at his master's expense, but for his master's benefit. The debt is forgiven, and the un unjust ill-gotten gain is foregone before it can be received. Using two wrongs to rake a right, honor among thieves may be, but justice has been done, and all the master can do is applaud if he pursues the matter he will be undone. Well, that's the way the world should have worked, Jesus is saying, and you can go with the flow and work with it. God will somehow get in the middle of our very mixed motivations and still work out something for his glory and for the justice of those who are part of his world. That's very fine and good. However, you don't need the second person of the Trinity to instruct you on how to manage worldly wealth. You, in fact, you don't really need the whole recorded witness of scripture. And if this is all the wisdom Jesus can apparently dispense, we would do better to turn to Proverbs. Indeed, the word that is used here for shrewdness or the shrewd one, phronimos, is immediately jumps to your memory if you've worked through Aristotle's ethics. It's the word that Aristotle consistently uses for the wise person, the person who knows 
how life is to be lived, who always dwells in the middle of the golden mean, in harmony with all that is true and good and beautiful. It's the actual model of virtue, if you like, that we see also being held up in Proverbs and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. So there's nothing particularly devious or shady, as the word shrewd seems to imply about it. As to whether that word gets its color from being used in an economic model, I can only say I do not know. As far as I know, it has never been tried, at least in the world of macroeconomics. Now, Israel had her own ideas and took advantage on the possibility of lending to foreigners and took that and ran with it over the centuries with everyone else in hot pursuit. Interest-free loans, however, are not the only ideal that are set forth in the Old Testament. They take this further with the idea of jubilee years in which debt, principle itself, is forgiven. And the poor are apparently let off scot-free. Uh, Dr. Wright, who wrote this uh, uh, analysis of the text at the time when he was uh, the Lord Bishop of Durham regularly would make speeches in the House of Lords, in which he had a seat, of course, requiring or requesting at least that the nation consider debt forgiveness for many third world countries who had been talked into extortionate loans by those with money to lend. I don't know how far the idea went. It was perhaps found to be an economic self-interest, and it may have been extended for a while. But this is what the Bible says. And how it's supposed to work, I have no idea. That's what the texts say. And as long as this is what the texts are saying, we cannot get away with it either, nor can we get away from them. And we run the great world system as business as usual at our peril. And so we do. So I will leave that. I'm not going to examine the more interesting aspect of what we would do with the possibility that these mixed motivations somehow are used to by God, to honor God. I think in some way that's evidently true in what we can see in human nature and in the Bible. But I want to take this model of stewardship and also catch up with the rest of the reading that isn't given us to study today and look a little bit at what stewardship can be when we get away from the concept of wealth. We, uh, as stewards, are left in charge not just of whatever wealth we managed to uh, create or to benefit from receiving. We're left in charge of something much greater than that. We're left in charge of this entire fragile and beautiful planet, which is the source of all our wealth. We are the stewards of this planet, and we will answer for our stewardship of this planet on the last day. We're given stewardship of the planet in the garden in Genesis, and God never rescinds the mandate. We have to look then at how the planet is doing, not just because it is the source of our wealth and the wealth of our children, which it absolutely is. But because we have to answer for the planet not in ways that are utilitarian in their understanding, but because the planet is made for God's delight and his pleasure. All these species 
with which God has populated the planet are made for his pleasure first. And I've shared this story before, I'll share it again, a talk of Gordon Fee when he was down in New Zealand at an aquarium and saw all these fish that they had brought up from the depths of the ocean, miles below the sea, species that had never been seen by any human eye and never would be. And he saw them in the tank, these beautiful colors with which they were radiant. And he wept. He said, I realized that God made these fish for his delight alone. And it didn't matter whether any human eye ever saw them, let alone extracted them as some resource. He has made this creation for his delight alone, and it is our job to hand it back as much as we can. That's something to think about. Now, there are answers and rather questions about what seems to be causing what we perceive as uh, a degree of alteration of the patterns of the climate, the sustained life on this world. There are all kinds of other questions related to how we use all kinds of the other resources of this world, uh, regardless of climate. These are open questions, uh, how much God himself may be behind some of these shifts, and how much there is human agency are matters for the scientists to settle. I would love to see more scientific inquiry into this question than less. And I would prefer to answer to my creator, at least having said, I encourage there to be more investigation rather than simply backing off. Assuming all is well, hoping everything turns out, and grabbing as much as you can out of the environment while we're here. That's not science, and that's not an answer for our present attitude. If we risk squandering our inheritance then and damaging this planet and hoping to get the best of it we can for ourselves on our way to something better, we might remember that God's hope is that this will be our eternal home. And our project is to anticipate what he will do to restore it as much we can. I cannot read the text any other way. God knows all too well how to restore it. But history shows that when we use his plan in bits and pieces just for our short-term utility, none of it seems to work out. And we often find that we're worshiping our own idols in the process, wherever in the marketplace we have set them up. And that raises questions as well. Jesus' own manifesto as well on the Sermon on the Mount gives us a lot of an attitude, an approach to looking at what we are to do with this world and with our life as we live it here. And as we look down the road and say, come Lord Jesus, come please, and settle these questions and settle everything and make this world come back to where it was, there is room to be encouraged even as we face, if we choose to, the overwhelming task that is ours if we take some responsibility for what might be going on with this world that we have in our charge. It's easy to get utterly undone by the sheer scale, the sheer magnitude of the task, especially if God himself is pushing the project along. As stewards, however, we're not to be let off the hook. 
And my heart was very touched and my attention grabbed by a lot of activity that took place around the world this last Friday in which people around the world at least rose up to affirm the possibility that this fragile planet deserves a little more care than we are giving it. It's a value for those who are to come because most of these people were young. And they will take the usual abuse for being out of touch and not having enough knowledge and all these things. The fact is it is their world to inherit and ours to give to them in whatever state we turn it over. So I'm just requiring of myself a little more diligence. I'm not one to go marching on behalf of the church, on behalf of any cause. That's not my right to do. <coughs> Causes are political, and our church is a very divergent, not divergent, but convergent, should I say, and diverse group. And we express ourselves politically at the ballot box. And it's not for me to throw a preference one side or the other on any issue that concerns life on the planet whatsoever. Let me say it again. It's not my job as the pastor of a church in which people have a variety of political opinions to throw myself into the political fray on any issue whatsoever. But it is my task to raise up values and to suggest that they might be down the line some way, something for which we will be accounted. And as I saw these kids jumping up, some of them are rather young, I was reminded of the last verse of this chunk of text that we've read today, and then I'm done. A very short, but again challenging text. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And what the text seems to me saying is small things are significant. You don't have to solve the whole problem overnight, though time does seem to be running out. And this fact is validating, validated by even a fleeting acquaintance with church history, that this principle of the remnant, of the mustard seed, of the small decisive action which is going to turn the tide, the grassroots option is Jesus the King's preferred option for any kind of major change. Grassroots from the ground up, not the top down, and that even the tiniest things have consequences. So to tie the readings together, no, we cannot serve both God and money, but we can use our money and our talents and our energy to serve God. We can use everything we have to serve God and his vision of what life should be like under our care. So let us seek then to serve, to serve wisely and boldly, to make Jesus the Lord of our souls, then our bodies, then the body politic, and in that order. And that this will give us the room to maneuver, to work from what God has placed on our hearts to make a difference. And let us pray that we work this year and in the years to come to open ourselves as creatures of habit to be more and more rehabituated in this our habitus, more reoriented and predisposed to hear our master's voice and obey him when he calls. For life is lived in the little things, and we have no idea of the eternal consequences of the smallest acts of obedience in the everyday. Amen.